Thank you for joining us for IEB There. And now your host, David Cohen. Over to you, David. All right, thank you. So today is Wednesday, April 29th, and uh, time is just flying by. Uh, I'm uh, David Cohen, the president of IAB, and welcome uh, to IAB There, which is our daily live stream in which we look to connect the digital advertising ecosystem. We are super excited today to talk to Ari Paparo uh, from Beeswax about the future of programmatic. So I'll have Ari join us on the stream. And as that is happening, I wanna let you know that if you have any questions, if anything that we are talking about so moves you, uh, please feel free to post that question to Twitter with the hashtag IAB there, all caps. And if we have time, we will, uh, we will take those questions. Hello, Ari, how are you? Great, David, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's our pleasure. I was thinking, actually, as I was coming on, we've known each other for quite some time. We're uh, we're some wily veterans in this business, so it's uh, it's good to see you. We haven't uh, seen each other in, in a little bit of time. So yeah, years of double click. I ended up kind of going to everyone's office, meeting every single person in the whole ad tech world. Back in those double click days, those are the good yep. old days. All right, so let's start. We're gonna we're gonna talk about business, obviously. Before we talk about business. You look like you're in a lovely location. How are you and the family faring in this kind of uh, crazy time? Yeah, we're doing our best. Um, so uh, me and the family are out on Long Island. Uh, we live in Manhattan, but we kind of escaped New York. Uh, and we're trying to do our best uh, with working from home, Zoom classrooms for the kids. Um, our office in the city is obviously closed. So we have roughly 100 employees all Zooming into everything. Uh, and so far, it's pretty manageable. Um, but, uh, you know, one day at a time. Yeah, I think that's a good perspective. So, I mean, we, we've talked about this um, internally and with a bunch of our guests. The amount that you can get accomplished uh, by just going from one thing to the next, there's no travel time, no commuting time, sometimes no eating time. So there's just, uh, there's, it's a, a lot of stuff you get accomplished in a very short period of time. It's just, it's just super intense. But uh, I'm glad to hear that you and the family are, are, uh, are doing well. So for those of us in the audience who have not heard of uh, Beeswax, uh, can you tell us like what it is that you do? What's the, what's the elevator pitch? Yeah, sure. I, I find it hard to believe anyone would not have heard of us, but uh, I'm happy to entertain. Uh, so um, Beeswax <laughs> is a company I started uh, with two other Google execs um, about five or six years ago. Um, and what we, what we identified was that there was an underserved part of the DSP market that uh, sort of very sophisticated and hands-on marketers and media companies really wanted to control every aspect of their DSP, their own algorithms, their own data, uh, API integrations, et cetera. And we just didn't feel like the uh, mainstream DSPs were suited for that. Um, so we created the company. We created a product category we call the bidder as a service. And effectively, each customer gets their own DSP. It's like the Oprah DSP. You get a DSP. You get a DSP. Everyone gets their own DSP. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's been pretty successful. We're up to 100 employees. We've raised $28 million. Um, we're powering some really great brands in their programmatic advertising. And, and who are you bumping up against? Are you just competing against other DSPs? Is that your competitive set? To some extent, we compete against all the DSPs. But the ones we're most head-to-head -head against would be the Trade Desk and AppNexus. Uh, both of whom have APIs and are, you know, probably the most uh, most 
similar philosophically to us. Um, we think we have better mousetrap, but they're obviously good companies and uh, we go head to head with them all the time. So when you say philosophical similarities, it sounds very existential. What is a philosophical, <laughs> your philosophical? Uh, yeah, advantage? I've described this before, but I think the DSP market is, you can think of it as like a barbell. You have two extremes. On the one hand, you have set it and forget it, black box just works. And those would be like DV360, maybe a Moby, used to be rocket fuel, people like that who, you know, it works, but how much of a take rate they're taking and whether you can manipulate it is questionable. And then on the other extreme, you have transparent APIs, customizable. And that's where us, the trade desk, can have nexus. So, so those are kind of, that's how the DSP market is shaken out. And the, the people in the middle who do a little bit of both are the ones who have trouble because they aren't as easily, um, you know, matched with what the customers need. Got it. Got it. So that's what philosoph philosophical. philosophical. I got it. Okay. <laughs> so um, you just, um, I noticed, acquired a company, which is super cool. Um, it yep. was a UK-based AI company, Media Gamma. What did they fill in your kind of product offering? What, why did you need to have them? Yeah, so Media Gamma was a partner of ours for several years, and they're uh, uh, you know, an interesting small company. They had really great talent in uh, machine learning as it relates to ad tech. So they have built optimization algorithms, uh, SPO algorithms, all kinds of interesting stuff directly tied to ad tech. They were operating kind of like a consultancy, so hourly rates or project rates, things like that. Um, and, and they had done work for us. Um, so when we found out that it was possible to, uh, you know, bring them on full time, we're really excited about it. Um, so we acquired that business. Um, and then the, um, the rest of that business had been pivoted and spun off as a separate business called Nozzle uh, that we did not acquire. That's to do with Amazon shopping. So we really just took that ad tech consultancy. And the reason we did it was just, you know, because there's amazing talent who really understands ad tech. Um, and can help you know develop our platform. And are you in are you a global uh, offering, or are you primarily based in the U.S.? What's uh... we're so we have data centers globally, and we buy ads globally. Um, we have people in the U.S. and in London. We have about ten people in London, or actually, it's probably I think it's up to twelve with Media Gamma, um, and they service all of Europe, uh, and then we service the U.S. We don't have any people in Asia Pacific right now. Got it. We've been doing a bunch of uh, research on kind of the impact of COVID on the advertising uh, industry. Mm -hmm. We've issued some uh, a buy side report. We issued a sell side report. We're coming out tomorrow with our latest uh, buy side research. And we have found that programmatic uh, has been the most resilient uh, generally mm -hmm. in the kind of digital uh, ecosystem and certainly far better than some of the traditional channels, television specifically. What has COVID done to your business? How has it changed? Yeah, sure. So we definitely have seen softness starting around the middle of March. We, we normally would expect spend through our platform to spike up towards the end of March because of March madness and seasonal budgets and all of that sort of stuff. And that didn't happen. Um, so budget uh, sort of flatlined from February through March, which was unexpected and certainly below, below where it normally would be. We also saw vertical softness. We, we weren't very exposed to travel or retail, but the few customers we had in those sectors, obviously, just went yeah. to zero basically. Yeah. Um, because we operate a SaaS model, um, we as a business have been pretty resilient. Um, our customers are on annual contracts um, and, and they're not going out of business. They're just kind of slowing down spend. So it's been pretty solid for us 
Um, but obviously, if our customers are suffering, we want to, you know, be accommodating and we've had various conversations to try to make them whole and make them successful. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. We've we've also obviously been doing a lot of stuff around. We've seen you know tremendous uh, spikes in usage in, in news and news-related kind of mm -hmm. content, as one would expect. Uh, super important uh, for us to kind of stay on top of what's going on. And there's been kind of a uh, equally unfortunate commensurate kind of blacklisting, avoiding the news by uh, some marketers, which we're seeing actually um, change over time. I think mm -hmm. that the collective kind of campaigns against that have been successful. Have you seen anything in the kind of blacklisting context um, targeting in your in your world or, or has it not? Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring this up. I actually kind of started this problem. So, um, nice. I, you know, if you go back, I tweeted a screenshot of the New York Times homepage with some ads blocked. Um, and I said, this is ridiculous. And that tweet kind of went viral and went when crazy. Was uh, it was it was like in mid-March or okay. like the third uh, week. Talk about ancient history. So this year, got it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and like a lot of the brouhaha started because of my tweet and people piled on and started retweeting it and stuff like that. And so I had to like apologize to my friends at Double Verify for, you know, putting them in the, in the hot seat. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, for, I'm personally a believer that if you, um, that the fears of content adjacency are really overblown for something like COVID that's a, sort of a generic problem of society. If you want news content, you're gonna get the good and the bad and the ugly. Uh, and I think those tools are overused or, or too broadly used. Um, even though they're incredibly valuable in the right context. Um, so I'm really happy with what the IB's done and what's happened in, in like the UK where there's been a lot of activity in this area. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that um, it's really important that our news organizations can, uh, can get the revenue that they need and, you know, with this increase in volume. Yeah, yeah, totally. And we've actually seen that um, actually Double Verify uh, was part of a, a town hall that we did yesterday and they've actually shown some data that we have been able to kind of made a material impact uh, and difference in terms of education and helping marketers and agencies uh, think about this in a in a different way, especially in con in context of COVID. So that's yeah, cool. and you started it all, and I didn't even realize. That. <laughs> um, all right, so let's talk about um, you know the the bell of the ball. I think uh, I think rightfully so is kind of OTT connected TV, all mm -hmm. the kind of streaming uh, activities, and um, that's that's being uh, subsumed by programmatic in a, a super meaningful way. So cross-channel, omni-channel, whatever your kind of version of that is, seems to be the, the play. What, what's your play in that space? Do you play equally across all? What's your magic sauce or secret sauce? Yeah, uh, we're a major CTV buyer. Um, we tend to sell our product to other media companies though. So we have companies who are buying CTV on behalf of their advertisers as a managed service. Um, so, um, so, so the, the intelligence side, if you will. So you're the kind of, you're yeah. The provi yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So, um, so we, we, um, so these media companies be, be it telecoms or, uh, ad networks of various kinds might be using us to, to transact connected TV at scale. Um, and when you aggregate it, we've heard from most of the major exchanges, we're in the top five buyers globally, or sometimes top 10, depending on the exchange of connected TV inventory. So it's, a, so it's a pretty substantial piece of our business. Um, what we're seeing in the marketplace is that it's pretty confusing still um, because the volume's there and the demand's there, but the identity, uh, the data that's flowing through is very messy. 
very inconsistent. Um, to give one example, we just published a stat yesterday that um, I'm trying to remember. I think it was 73% of all of the auction requests in connected TV had what's called an exchange ID, meaning it wasn't an ID of the user, it wasn't an ID of the machine. It was an ID that had been synthesized by the seller to just give us something to work from. So some sort of hash of signals, not a real ID. Uh, and that was the vast majority on connected TV. Um, so that gives you a sense of some of the challenges that advertisers have in making sense of the data. Yeah, I know that uh, on the, uh, the tech lab side of the equation, they're working very, very hard. Because as you would imagine, as the growth of the industry is kind of skyrocketing, it makes it a attractive uh, opportunity for kind of fraud yeah. and bonds fraud, and that yeah. kind of stuff. So we're trying to, so similar to ads.txt in the kind of uh, non-OTT space, we're uh, they're working on stuff uh, in the connected TV space uh, as well. That's very uh, awesome. Yes, uh, let's talk about uh, ad fraud since you brought it up. Um, you know, what's the what's the latest state of play uh, as it relates to, uh, to ad fraud, and and what's your perspective on how that's improved over time? Yeah, you know, no one knows is the answer. Like because if uh, unless you had a hundred percent knowledge of ad fraud, uh, you couldn't know, and if you had that, you'd stop it. You'd stop it. So it's sort of an unknown, unknown issue of how bad it is. I think it's generally acknowledged that fraud is a lot better than it was historically. Um, you know, the IEB's ads.txt took out a whole dimension of ad fraud um, and made it enormously harder to do things, as well as um, the, the vendors in the space have gotten better and they're also pretty widely deployed on the sell side. So the exchanges are, are doing stuff they weren't doing four or five years ago to filter uh, auctions before they ever get to you. So, so a lot of these, uh, a lot of these um, you know, technologies have been deployed to kind of cut down on the problem. It's still a problem. There's still ad fraud out there. And when it pops up its head, when you get some campaign with terrible results or you know, obvious fraud, you know, it's a lot of manpower and a lot of work to unroll that and to have phone calls and to try to figure out where the money went. Um, and you know, it, um, there's a lot more work to do. Yeah, got it. Um, so I'm sure this is not going to be the first time that you've heard this. So uh, I'm, you're not going to fall out of your chair, but the third party cookie is uh, is going mm. away. Heard this. And uh, you've heard that. And, um, you know, we're, we're obviously working through, we have a, a project that we're calling Project Rearc internally mm -hmm. to kind of uh, educate and bring all parts of the ecosystem together to talk about what's the future of addressability in a, in a cookie-less world. The, so I'd be curious as to what your perspective is on that, uh, A, and B, where do you fall out on the, I could probably guess, on the context versus audience uh, debate? Yeah, sure. So I, I've spoken extensively on this subject and I, I, not to give myself a plug, but you can see like 45 minute videos of me talking on this subject on YouTube. Well, if you're not going to plug yourself, no one will. So there you go. <laughs> um, but the short, the short answer is one size fits all is not going to happen. So I'm involved in REARC. I'm supportive of REARC. Um, and I think that's going to work. I think it's going to work on, you know, a subset, a small subset of available media. Um, so, you know, even if we get consumers logging in when they read news sites and logging in and uh, when they go to advertiser sites, the combinations, the math is just isn't going to work. You're going to end up with 25, 35% of your addressable media with real identity. So what do you do about the other 65%? Well, you're going to have to use context. You're going to have to use publisher-based uh, first-party data where publishers will 
have cohorts or differential privacy based um, data that's being passed to the advertiser, or you might just have nothing and, and you, you'll have to accept that. And so the media plan and media attribution of the future is gonna have to bring together different techniques and different combinations to get insights that we've taken for granted. Um, I think the good news is that right now we're in denial about the fact that 40% of digital advertising through Safari is totally un untargetable and people don't panic about that. People don't think that's a problem, even though those users are overwhelmingly more wealthy and, uh, and more urban and better consumers than the Android consumers. So uh, this is the wake up call that will, I hope, change our point of view on how we do business. I think Project Regarc is great. It's one piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And are you developing any kind of product offering on your own that will help in this regard or? Well, we don't think it's our role to have an identity solution per se, but what we're doing is building as flexible and as open solutions to other, uh, other sources of identity as possible. So we've been a really uh, close partner with LiveRamp. We're the first DSP that allows you to bid on LiveRamp identity in connected TV um, natively. So you, that just works on our platform. Um, we, we have very intelligent, like cookie, uh, cookie list frequency gapping already in production. We have all, we're, we're just chipping away at the problem with technology solutions and partnership solutions uh, to support my thesis and our philosophy, we'll use that word again, uh, which is one size doesn't fit all. You have to bring a lot of different tools to the, tools to, uh, to the problem. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the greatest challenges that I, I know we face, I'll put on my agency hat, I can put on my IAB hat, I can put on whatever hat you like, is kind of frequency management cross screen. Mm -hmm. So how do we kind of not step on each other? How do we not bid against each other? There, you know, there's many ways to yeah. skin a cat, many ways to get at kind of the, the same inventory. Do you have any kind of uh, solution in that, or is that once again not not going to be your? Yeah, so um, so maybe this is the bad metaphor, but I've been thinking about frequency cap. It's not per. It's impossible to do perfect frequency capping, right? Uh, it's uh, even in a single media, it's impossible. So what you're doing is How about you pretty know, good. We could do yeah, yeah. Good. That's exactly it. What you're trying to do is the COVID approach. You got to flatten the curve. You want to flatten. You don't want to have the spikes of hundreds of impressions to a to a cohort of users. You want to yeah. flatten it, take it down a notch. And when you get when you take that approach, that it doesn't need to be perfect. You can use machine learning. You could use um, probabilistic graphs. You can use all kinds of techniques to try to do your best to uh, reduce frequency on exposed audiences. Um, and so that's our approach. Um, we we are using cross device graphs. We are um, using like IP address as a proxy for cross device uh, for frequency capping. That's in production right now. Um, I think there's more we can do. And this is where I think like, it was really interesting that uh, I'll plug a competitor that Google announced that they're doing cookie-less frequency capping using machine learning. Uh, I think that's kind of fascinating and I'd love to see more details on how that's working. Got it, yeah. Um, we'll stay tuned on that too. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's talk about, um, you know, there's the, there's the, there's the first party data um, question, you know, coming from the, uh, an agency, we work with lots of big companies uh, they were they were starting to kind of figure out, are we going to use our first party data? How do we use our first party data? Uh, do we need to kind of get it from elsewhere? Should we be kind of leveraging third party data, which has been going on for a long, long time? What's if we look at fact versus fiction, myth versus reality, how much first party data are marketers or are your clients using today uh, as they go to market? 
Yeah, I, I think first party data is the is the most valuable pound for pound that you're the data that you're going to use. So that's a quotable, um, that's a tweetable, uh, that's a tweetable <laughs> object right there. Okay, got it. Well, I mean, when you have it, you, you better use it, right? Uh, it's it's really valuable. Um, so in the current world where mobile IDs still exist, third uh, probabilistic device graphs still exist, third party cookies exist on sixty percent of the world. That first party data is actionable along those vectors of, of, of data. Um, and, um, and so the, there isn't really an issue about first party data. The issue is how usable will it be in a third party context as, as third party cookies and maids go away, mobile yeah. identifiers, yeah. right? So, so it could be, there's, two, there's a bunch of answers. One answer is useless. Like it doesn't matter how much first party data you have. You're just not gonna be able to use it because you're because the world is blocks cookies. There's another answer, which is one of these sandbox proposals, turtle dove, whatever will work. I'm very skeptical. Uh, and then there's the other answer, which is something like Project Reark or the LiveRamp Identity Link will have enough scale to let you use the data. Um, those are kind of all different possibilities. Yeah. Um, we'll see where it ends up. Yeah. Yep. 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 So you saw, I'm sure you saw CBS. Um, CBS just launched their own. Uh, ad network. Uh, we've had other kind of uh, ad networks, Target, Walmart, um, etc., um, creating their own kind of uh, go-to-market proposition. What's what's your take on that? Um, more yeah. than those? Well, I, I think that uh, it's really exciting for CPG brands um, where they've had very little data about the actual individuals purchasing their products, and um, and maybe they've gotten little bits of it from their vendor vendor partners, but now they're getting it in bulk in a usable form, or rather they're getting to use it and not actually seeing the data, but they get to use it. <laughs> um, so that's a real breakthrough. Um, even if it's not exactly what they want, they want it all first party, but they can't get it. So they're getting second party data um, and they have these large trade budgets. So that's also great because they could activate that. Um, also, they, it reduces the dependency on Amazon. So Amazon um, in the space, in this retail media space, by far the leader. So having Walmart and CVS and maybe Walgreens in the future is also good for everybody. Um, what's not so good about it is that they're walled gardens. So now the agency or the advertiser at a retailer or CPG now has five different consoles they have to log into to do their business uh, and maybe different ways of measuring stuff and unclear about duplication and all that, all those kind of nonsense. Um, so, um, so we'll see how that works. I think taking those implications to the logical conclusion, there won't be 20 of these, right? You're going to have diminishing returns as you go down the retail list for generic, you know, mainstream goods, pharmaceuticals. Maybe there'll be vertical approaches, maybe sporting goods will be a possible category, I don't know. But uh, there's going to be a limited tolerance for retailer number 10 or regional retailers to be able to do this. Yeah. Okay, I got two or three more questions and then we'll uh, we'll call it a wrap. Um, okay. Pro programmatic in-housing is something that we've been talking about for years. Um, you know, there have been uh, limited successes uh, on the kind of marketer side, kind of bringing programmatic in uh, at scale. Um, obviously, there's kind of data ownership, technical tech ownership, and kind of whether you're hands-on keyboard, I guess there's obviously variations on that. What are you seeing? Are you seeing more in-housing? How dramatic is it? And what do you foresee over the back half of the year? 
It, it's a big topic. Um, as you said, there are variations on what people are doing. I think that it's important to note that there's this different segment of, of uh, brands that never had an agency that are in housing. So in direct response, in mobile, in digital first, uh, you know, one consumer. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, DraftKings is one of our premier customers. I don't think they ever use an agency for digital at least. So they're in housing, but it's like from ad networks and non-transparent sources. And that's happening broadly. I'd say most D2C brands don't use an agency for digital. So if you think about the number of brands or the no amount of spend that is managed in-house, it's a very large number. Yeah. Now, if you start saying in-housing, what I think we mean by that shorthand is mainstream marketer used to use an agency, declares on stage at one of the big events, like we're in-housing. And then for the next year, their agency partners give anonymous quotes to the press about how it's not working out uh, in an attempt to get them back. Uh, yeah, so that is a quagmire, I agree. And you have some successes and some failures, but I'm bullish on it in the long term. Got it. Let's talk about some uh, positive, optimistic stuff. What are you excited about most for the for the back half of this year? What are you looking forward to? Uh, well, uh, a rebound in spend. Stepping outside without having to wear a mask. Yes, stepping outside. A rebound in spend. I think there's just enormous amount of budget uh, for brands that can sell in this environment, that want somewhere to go, don't have the Olympics to spend it on, um, don't have uh, a lot of other sports. And as soon as it's safe to come outside for the brands, they're going to, there's going to be a lot of advertising dollars around. Um, yeah. uh, from a more product technical perspective, seeing a lot of momentum in programmatic guarantee um, as kind of like the last, it's the last chink in the armor of, uh, of like tag based IOs, you know, like that last bit that people are still using buy side ad service for going into programmatic. That's, that seems to be happening a lot this year. Got it. Okay. Two last questions. They're both fun. So get, get ready. Number one. All right. What have you, um, it's like a guilty pleasure. What have you picked up in the past, let's say six weeks since we've been kind of at home that uh, either's a book, a binge show to watch, uh, are you taking up a needle points? Like what, what are you doing that you haven't done before? Uh, yeah, so this is really my wife and, and daughter. They started watching this really stupid show called New Girl from the 90s and uh, I'm secretly watching it with them. Uh, it's very funny. <laughs> Oh, okay. I've not heard of that, but uh, I will have to bring that up with my Very funny. two kids as well. All right. And my last, which is obviously my favorite, I'm going to read you a series of, uh, of words uh, in this lightning round, <laughs> and you are going to tell me uh, what immediately comes to mind, right? Okay. Okay. So uh, let's, uh, let's go. 5G. Uh, COVID. Don't make every answer COVID. That's a cheat. Okay. <laughs> Artificial intelligence. Um, <laughs> Marcel. Supply path optimization. Um, kickbacks. Blockchain. Bullshit. Spoofing. Uh, ads that text. CCPA. Bullshit. Podcasts. Uh, awesome. Header bidding. Um, open bidding. OTT. You know me. Wearables. <laughs> uh, <don't laughs> Quarantine. Internet of Things. Quarantine. Esports. Millennials. CES. Uh, Petri dish. 
Oh, dude, you rocked that. Oh, that was the best. That was the best yet. That was excellent. Thank you. And I'm, uh, we're going to continue that. That's a very fun little game. So I think that's all we have for today. Thank you. I want to thank you for participating. It's been a great uh, conversation. Obviously, stay tuned to this space. See where Beeswax goes in the uh, in the back half of the year. I wish you all the best, all the, all the luck in the world. And if uh, you ever need anything, don't hesitate to, to reach out. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. All right, so I'm going to do a, a wind up uh, on tomorrow's IAB. There, we are well. Uh, we're excited to welcome back uh, IAB's SVP of Research, Sue Hogan, along with special guest Mike Law, who's the president of Amplify in the U.S. at Then Sue Aegis Network, to analyze the state of the buy side. This will be the latest re uh, reser results that we are releasing on uh, on our on our research the IAB's Coronavirus Ad Revenue Impact Report. IAB There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy, Joe Ons, John Ward, Twafika Mohinadin, and Haley Bloom. I'm David Cohen, and thank you for watching. If you're interested in viewing uh, this or any of our previous IAB There videos, please visit iab.com slash videos slash IAB dash there. And be sure to come back tomorrow because if it's 2 p.m. Eastern on a weekday, you know it's time to IAB there. Thanks a lot. Have a good afternoon.